Hi everyone. The next season of Coachcast is under construction. So while we're busy working on that, we thought we'd introduce you to another podcast from England Football Learning. So this time we want to introduce you to the Women's and Girls Coach Development Podcast. It's hosted by the Women's National Coach Developer, Mark Swales. And in this episode that we're sharing today, Mark chats with Kelsey Byrne, who's a Women's National Coach Developer, and Joe Williams, who's a Regional PE Coordinator. They share their findings of goal scoring data that they collected to explore how we can help coaches improve one-touch finishing for individual players. They also discuss how positive learning environments can make a difference to all of this. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Women's and Girls Coach Development Podcast. Um, It's a pleasure to have Kelsey and Joe with me, two colleagues of mine from the FA who have also over time had different roles and, and currently coaching in clubs that we work with. Kelsey, would you like to just sort of share your work and, and your time within the FA with people? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a national coach developer, same as yourself, Mark. Currently supporting coaches both developmentally and within formal education. So the majority of that is is a licensed work if it's education and the formal route and the development is either supporting coaches between the B and the A license or supporting coaches that have already got the A license and want to continue on their development journey really. That's great and one of the reasons why why you're on here and before we come to Joe is that we're going to talk today about One Touch Finishing and you delivered a fantastic webinar and we're going to explore some of that stuff in, in more detail around the one touch finishes today. Joe, we work together within the PE team and you also have a coaching role and it's great to have you here today to share a little bit about what you've been doing. Yeah, thanks very much. So yeah, so as you said, I'm the regional PE coordinator for kind of East Anglia, that sort of area. Predominantly that role is all around helping to improve the quality of the PE provision within primary and secondary schools but of course using football as it's so popular and so embedded in education to try and do that and then on the side I've been working with Watford ladies in particular the development squad I've been doing that for the last season and a half Uh, so it's been really great to kind of put my day job into the coaching side as well and the two are so closely linked together and trying to cross over in some of the messages and things. Uh, yeah, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted you on this, this whole idea of positive learning environments and how we can really explore getting the best out of our players within young age groups. But then also, you know, your experiences of working with Watford and how you transfer some of those those experiences into sort of working with senior players as well. We'll talk more about the learning environment as we move through. But Kelsey, first of all, just just for those that haven't watched it, I think it'd be great for you to give everyone just a, an insight into the, the webinar you delivered because it really leads into what we're going to talk to to you both about today. No problem. Because of the nature of the work we do, Mark, and we, we work predominantly within the professional game, we've sat and had a number of conversations around some of the data and the landscape in which we, we understand the women's game to be and look like. So when having some of these conversations with FA Education and the performance analysis team, we started a goal scoring data collection project. And that looked specifically at goal scoring within the WSL. And we started to unpick that and and what that looked like so that we could utilize some of that within formal education and within our guys work of helping support and develop coaches within their, their own environments and at club. So the webinar itself was really to unpick some of that and start to share that 
with coaches. We wanted to share some of the findings, look at some specifics around goal scoring and finishing the attack. But that was mainly towards, you know, a, a game model and how do we get players in the right areas at the right times to create goal scoring opportunities. Whereas we're hoping today to unpick that a little bit further and start to peel back the layers of the individual finish itself and looking more around that individual rather than the collective development and, and hopefully start to unpick the actual finish from today. You know, too often we we go in and then we create practices and, and we do things with our players and our teams that we work with, but we never have anything to really back it up with evidence. I think what that webinar has given us within the women's and girls game is an opportunity to, to explore in more detail how goals are created and scored and and what, what was your probably biggest learning point from that webinar first of all in terms of creating and getting into opportunities to score goals i think probably more more wider than just finishing the attack would be that we, we've just got to understand the game demands we've got to understand what the game's telling us right now and how what that means for the future some people listening will be developing players for in five and six years time that we're hoping will reach the WSL but if we're not too sure what that looks like and what the game demands are at that level right now then we most definitely can't produce players that can strive and survive in in those environments Mm -hmm. so I think really unpicking what the game's telling us I think is so so important and allowing me to do this project has really allowed me to get to grips with what that final third looks like feels like smells like for the players and I'm pretty sure now that I could replicate that in practice and I think the more that we can go into the game itself and unpick it and start to get some real objective data that underpins some of the stuff we do. I think football is is quite largely subjective and what people think, which is absolutely brilliant. And I think having a vast variety of what people think is great, but there's got to be something that underpins the foundations of our decisions. And I think this is what really now we'll support coaches with having something to, to go from in terms of stats and data. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. And it was probably the biggest thing that I took from it and also listening to feedback from other coaches was that being able to have some objective data to really back up the, the subjective people's thoughts and opinions on what actually happens. Uh, Joe, from your perspective, just thinking about your time at Watford, how much time do you, you know, I know you're working in the development phase with, with the girls and everything, but do, do you have any sort of subjective data that you, you use or try and explore with the players at this point? It's it's an interesting um, one to explore because, you know, the, the players that we have there are not um you know, professional in the terms that they're full time. So the time that we have in contact with them is very, very limited. You know, we don't have access to a lot of advanced technology that other people have. That being said, where we can, we'll spend some time doing some of this analysis work. It tends to be a bit more arbitrary. We look as much into the detail as we can. That's what we try to work through this season and actually it's been really good to get some footage this season particularly with the development players and with this period that we've not been able to see them face to face we've got them to look at some of the footage so we've had zoom calls and and we go through some some areas what's been really interesting particularly with the first session is that and I, I find this found this a lot even before this role is is educating development players about how to analyze themselves because a lot of them didn't know how to do it they weren't really sure what they were looking at 
you know, the first time they look at some footage of themselves, they're looking at you know, what they kind of looked like. It was that sort of, what did I look like on camera? You mentioned about unpicking what they're doing. So it took a few goes to actually get them to understand how to analyse what they're doing and to kind of take moments in the game, like one-touch finishing, you know, they're moments in the game that they can really unpick rather than be very generic and say, you know, oh, that was good. Well, why was it good? Tell me about what you did there and what was your body shape like and how were you able to control the ball? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I totally agree with you. I think data is something it's, you can kind of go, you know, to way too deep into the data, but I think the right sort of data is so key in helping to progress the game and help players get better. Yeah. Now, before we get into the, the real detail of the, the data that Kelsey's going to talk about, the, the bit that really interests me there is, and this is putting our teachers' hat on, is that I think a bit of advice that, again, we can give to any coach of any young player or any age group is that sometimes we have to teach them how to observe and we have mm-hmm. to teach them how to find what they're looking for rather than just presume they'll know because otherwise, like you say, they could miss so many really good points without without that opportunity to you know develop themselves if they don't know how to look at the information correctly yeah definitely it's it's, and it's for me it's a bit more than that as well it's not bombarding them with too much but getting them to think about the right thing so you know one or two things that you can work on because there's you know they're so keen and they want to get better and they want to you know progress the first team hopefully and they want to um you know progress their career but you can't focus on everything all at once no, it's about no. you know guiding them towards the right little bits and i'm sure that's probably some of the things when we start to look at that positive environment and how we create those opportunities in training we'll, we'll, we'll delve into a little bit more detail kelsey this this really fascinates me because again i do like a bit of data and more and more as i see this it really interests me as much as a coach developer going into the clubs now and then obviously observing practices in the future around finishing the attack and one touch finishes. So do you want to, do you want to delve in a little bit deeper some of your findings now around what, what you found from the finishing point of view? Yeah, absolutely. And I think just drawing on what, what George said there around being really specific with the players, I think, you know, we need to be really clear of that, of coaches as well. And there's always a quote that, that flies around that we use around being data informed rather than data driven. And I think there's so much, you know, we've been on, on Statsbomb and you can find everything about every player possible. So it's about what, what you're looking for. And I think having that real clear game model and framework in which you want to work from will help you and help and support you Work, yeah. look for what you want to see um, and I suppose with this it was it was that that wide we started with you know what do we want to see what do we want to capture what do we feel like would be one beneficial to use within FA education but two be a, a vital tool to use with coaches and, and help with their coach development so we we started off with a sample size really of five game weeks in total and 28 games which saw around 61 goals being analysed. Um, and we only chose the first five weeks just as a, a real clear sample to really unpick, draw out all the information from, create some percentages, create some graphs and diagrams that would make sense to us and, and to others looking. So that's for this year's WSL League. It is, yeah. Yeah, so it's this year's data. We're currently continuing all the way through to, to the end of the season. Obviously, it was cut short but it gives us a really good idea around where the game currently is compared to last season's data as well. So out of the out of the 61 goals that were analysed, 36 of those goals, which is equivalent really to 59% of the goals, were first-time finishes. 
And that's something that really stood out to me straight away around the percentage. You're talking nearly 60% of finishers were first time. So that stood out to me when, when watching coaches and watching practices around how often are those types of environments recreated for players? Like what do we know about first time finishing? Do we do enough around hip mobility? Do we do enough around scanning awareness? Do we do enough around physical contact to be able to ride physical contact, utilize physical contact? Do we know how to exploit and manage space? So all these things started to come into my head as soon as I saw that that percentage and start. That's a that's a massive in you know percentage really. Fifty nine percent is is a is a huge amount of goals within sort of the, the amount that you've been looking at. Joe, does that just bring you in on this? Does that resonate with you with what you've seen with your team this year? Does does the stats sort of add up, or is it different for you? I'm not entirely sure if it would be as high as that, but there's definitely a considerable amount which would come from first time finishes and I don't know whether that's you know because it's you know confidence on the ball in those sorts of areas of the pitch or whether it's you know maybe we had them more from um, corners or a kind of set piece situation so it's you know like a header in or something like that but it's definitely I'm definitely keen to look more into the why why is that number there and I think the other I don't know if we can answer it now, but the other thing that makes me think of it is, okay, if, if 60% are first time, what's the other 40? And actually, why isn't that number higher? Why is it higher that it's, why is the 60% the first time fish and why isn't it another one? And is there an area that we can actually capitalise on and try and improve that stat as well? Absolutely. And I think that's where where now, I suppose, the, the importance of showing this is that there's one of saying this is where the landscape in the game currently is. But two, how do we utilise that to know where the skills gaps are and where the game might might eventually go? And I think that's that's key when when looking at really. And, and even with the rest of the the stats that have come out, it was clear to see that there were some clear headliners. But the question is there, Joe, exactly the same as what you said. It's is why why behind that and why behind the others? So just leading on from that first time finishing, the most frequent type of finish used was the strike. Now, we classified the strike as a goal scored by striking the ball with your instep. Now, that was significantly higher than than the other types of finishes, which were things such as pass, a chip, a volley, a header. And just by analysing the goal, especially within that first five weeks, Ebony Salomon's chip for Bristol was probably the only one that I analysed that was we would call different, as in really assessed the situation, assessed the goalkeeper and chose a different type of finish to overcome that opposition at that moment in time. So again, going back to yours, Joe, is, you know, what are the other types and and are we encouraging players to assess the situation, assess the goalkeeper and choose the right option at that moment in time? Yeah, no, I think that's, that, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think we'd all agree, you know, over time when we've been in and maybe even when we've been coaching as well, how often have we seen that that constant shooting practice, which is very much just about striking the ball, you know, a, a one-touch set and then you're striking the ball at a goal. How often do we, we see practices where, like you say, there's a little bit of creativity in terms of the chip, a volley, an environment where... There's a little bit more chaos going on, which is something we're going to talk more about in a little while. Um, 
would you say that's true for you, Joe, with Watford in terms of sort of the, the strike or the pass into the goal? Off the top of my head, it would be hard to tell which one would be kind of the most popular. I was just thinking about something you said about the kind of chaotic versus the kind of standard shooting practice. And it's, it's a it's a personal preference, I suppose, for any coach. But, you know, the, when you see coaching practices with mannequins, and I'm thinking, well, that it's got a place, but the mannequins aren't going to move. You know, the game is very, very different. And I think particularly for younger players, they need to be i would i would say they need to be in those environments where things are always moving it's it's the, you might find yourself in the in the same position but the pitch is always going to be different the mannequin doesn't move and i know you know we're going to build on to these sorts of things but you know then we're bringing in a whole raft of different factors around you know the confidence in those situations what they see you, know, you mentioned about scanning already and i think for me the one of the fundamental bits before you even get to the technique is letting them feel confident in those spaces to have a go at striking you know passing whatever it might be but be confident in that space so that you can choose the right technique yeah yeah and i suppose it leads into what happens before moment within sort of that one touch finish what what does that look like and i know you've sort of analyzed that a little bit more haven't you yeah, so I had a look specifically at the movement prior, and I suppose this was probably unpicking other sports as well. And I know you're hot on this, Mark, in terms of unpicking your basketballs, netballs, other, um, you know, invasion games where it's attack versus defence, outwitting an opponent. What do those movements look like to outwit that 1v1 duel or 2v1 duel, whatever that might be at that moment in time? So the movement prior, we looked at... Is it a movement in behind an opponent, whether that's me, my my direct defender that's that's attached to me at that moment in time? Is it I move onto the ball, so it's a sort of one or two steps that takes me onto striking the ball? Is it an individual dribble or carry? Is it a, just a half turn and receiving between and a strike? Is it a strike from standing, so it's almost like that little half step and, and finish? Or do I check back and step backwards to strike? So we looked at all those different elements, and I'm sure there'll be ones that fall outside the box of that. But in terms of the ones that we we looked at, 36 goals in total, which was, again, 59%, were strikes onto the ball. So me running and stepping onto the ball. So what's really important to probably think about when we, we were digesting this data is that these are, were goals that were scored and not that were missed. So the ones that were scored were one, 59% first-time finishes, and two, stepping onto the ball where I have one or two strides that take you straight into striking the ball. So it's almost setting it up quite nicely. And what would be really nice to unpick would be which ones were missed. Was it the ones that I had to get a toe poke on the end of or the one where I had to step back and try and adjust my, my feet and my movement patterns? You know, what types of finishes were missed? And I suppose that that's the the next bit to look into. I don't know if you've got anything on that, Mark. Well, what springs to mind with this is, you know, we talk about one-touch finishes and, and the number of goals that have been scored, but actually is there a correlation between the quality of the movement before it and the, and the variety of movements that's going to create more opportunities for one-touch finishes? And as you say, a lot of them have been that almost, and I'm going to use the term basic movement of running onto the ball where you're in a consistent movement that's mm -hmm. allowing you time to focus just on the ball. Um, rather than, as you say, something where you might have to spin 
or you might have to step back to, to move forwards, maybe causes more interference in, in the mind of what's going to come next and able to get a real clean strike on the ball. So how much does pressure in terms of, you know, the players that are in and around the ball have on, on these finishes? Yeah, and it's it's interesting you said that because in terms of the the standing still and almost striking from standing or having to check back, there was only three goals in from a from a standing position and five from a stepping back or a checking perspective. And whether that was a a conscious check or whether that's how to adjust to the ball that came in is a different matter, but it's considerably less than moving onto the ball in that that frequent movement pattern where my strides in place and all I've got to do now is is find somewhere to to put the ball. So so that looks very different. But in terms of the pressure itself, we looked at a, a number of factors really. How many players were inside the 18-yard box? So we studied if it was inside the 18-yard box, how many players were in there? from an attacking perspective and from a defensive perspective. And we found that from out of 41 goals that were inside the 18-yard box, 24 of those, so over half, had two, a defence plus two. So which means if I'm an attacker and there's two of us, there's going to be four of the of the opposition. So it's, oh, okay. it's almost them plus two. So... That was really interesting that more than half of, of them goals scored in the 18 had a defence plus two advantage. So again, thinking about that in, in context of, of practices, we're thinking, how often do we go neutral practices? How often do we do we let the attackers have more players? So we do a wave practice and it's a 3v2 because we want to get loads of success. And actually, if you think about what the data is telling us here, that... Yeah. Uh, Defence plus two, there's 24 goals out of 41 scored. Sorry, so what you're saying is that, you know, if we're going to create these these shooting opportunities in goals, we want four defenders and we want two attackers and we want a goalkeeper in there and, and we want them to be not sure where to put the ball or how to, how to strike the ball because there's so many bodies in the way. Yeah, so out of the 41 goals, only one goal was an attack, attack plus one, which was a counter-attacking opportunity. There was four neutral goals where there was four of them, four of us. But all the ones after that were defence plus one, defence plus two, all the way up to defence plus five, where there's actually five more of them than there is us. The the most popular being defence plus two. So we're even slowly, slightly behind with the defence plus three of, of nine goals. So it's been really conscious around that and what we were preparing the players for. And, and unpicking that further we looked at not just the players inside the box, but how close they were to the player on the ball. So we classified direct pressure as less than one metre away, where they could actually get direct pressure and influence and impact the player's decision on the ball. And 62% of them goals scored, so 38 goals in total, had direct pressure. So a player that was less than a metre away directly influencing and impacting the shot that they had. So that again, that's another another element and a string to think about when when putting on practices. I'm starting to realise why this project is taking so long to finish, Kelsey, with the details <laughs> yeah. you went into. <laughs> Joe, sorry. Yeah, the, the, no, the detail's incredible. And I'm, I'm just wondering, and again, just throwing a question out there. So 
in, ter- in my head, I'm thinking my first time finished, there's two elements. There's, you know, if you're talking very crudely, there's the, the striker who's potentially going to score the goal. And then the person who's delivering the final uh, cross pass, whatever it might be. How much would you say the result of the first time finish is impacted by the quality of the ball that comes in. And actually, if you were with a team and coaching, how much would you spend time working with the attacking players who might take the first time finish or the person who puts the ball across? Absolutely. It's a really good question. And thinking about, there's a number of elements that spring to mind when I think about this. And one is something that we've been speaking about within the FA recently around repetition without repetition. So the repetition of the environment and trying to recreate that defence plus two, the pressure, what's going on inside the 18-yard box, but without having that repetition of the final action, because there's, there's going to be slight differences with how I will look to finish based on the context I find myself in. Mm-hmm. So within each goal that I analysed, the context looked completely different. And for players to be able to be self-aware and choose the right action based on our current capabilities of what can I currently do? What am I confident in doing? Versus, you know, us as coaches trying to increase their capabilities. So can we increase that toolbox that next time they've got a more variety of responses to choose from, whether that's the person actually finishing or the person creating the final action and, and the action that comes just prior to that finish. So when I was looking at it, I, I almost looked at trying to look at it from two perspectives of one, that real time perception right now in the moment, what do I see and what am I responding to versus that anticipated action? So what have I potentially seen before or based on past experiences, what's that situational probability that this has happened prior in training and this is what type of outcome or action that this requires right now? Mm -hmm. So it's almost trying to, to balance that how much is is the player thinking about right now and how much do we get players to really be self-aware and, and reflect in the moment versus how much is can we do to try and increase that anticipated action where they almost know what patterns are recurring and coming next? Yeah, that's really such a hard balance to find. And particularly when you've got, and I'm by no means an expert, but you know, if you think about like the kind of the teenage brain or the developing brain, it takes a different amounts of time for different players to be able to assess all of those different moments. So to be able to judge how far away the person on the ball is to how quickly they're going to play in to how far away I am from the ball, you know, all of that takes time for them to actually develop in their brain. And then they've got to learn how to actually do it with their body and put it into practice. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, there's always this question of, you know, the realism of the game versus maybe something that's not realistic, but you're getting lots of repetition and it's finding that balance with the players. It's, it's, it's a really hard challenge. Yeah, I think just adding on to that as well, having some conversations with goalkeeping colleagues and trying to unpick it from a different perspective and what do they see? We started to look at a study that was done on males versus females and the difference in visual motion processing. So what that looked like for the goalkeeper and how do we utilise that from, from a striker and from a finishing perspective, but then also from, from a striker and a finisher assessing the ball coming in. And there was real differences between the males and the females being able to visually process that quick enough. And the males were able to do that quicker, whereas the females had a slight lapse. 
So it was almost that anticipated action and understanding what might come and the patterns that, that could happen will help me speed that up because I, I know what could be occurring. So we almost rely on that a little bit more as females. And it was a really interesting article and research that was done that really made me think differently about preparing players for visually processing something. I think it's one of the, the biggest things you hear on commentary of games is a, is a commentator saying, you know, you just can't teach that. And that's all natural ability. Well, I think what we're exploring here and saying here is actually that we can, maybe not everything can be taught or, or learned, but through practice with our younger players that we can allow them to experience as many opportunities in different environments and different moments within this to allow them to develop their finishing. Then we've got more opportunity when we're in the game. They'll recognise that moment earlier to get themselves prepared, which sort of leads nicely. In, and Joe, I'll come to you because obviously, you know, we spend plenty of time working together in, in the PE team, working on this positive learning environment and empowering pupils and, and players to sort of explore what they can achieve and a lot of your work currently at the moment is within the, the girls pathway in terms of within primary schools, secondary schools so linking this to obviously what you do with Watford as well if we're going to build on the content that Kelsey and you have just shared what, what are some of the things that we need to do? One thing that definitely comes to mind it's certainly a message that we try and share to those that are, you know, teaching youngsters, and then, you know, that youngsters can be, you know, primary, secondary, whatever age group, is that, you know, kids love to score goals. They absolutely love it. And I was having a, a conversation with another colleague and we were having this debate about why we perhaps don't have those sorts of ruthless strikers that we would want to have. And somewhere along the line, the, the goals get taken away. And, and one thing that we, we've spoken about a lot, particularly with the girls' space, as you mentioned, you know, particularly in schools, is about creating this sort of psychologically safe environment where actually they can you know, get that fun from scoring goals, but it's, it's in a safe um, place for them to do it. So there's lots of opportunities to score. No one's going to reprimand them if they get it wrong. And, and that is something that I definitely take into some of the coaching practice that I do. Is that and you know people will have different views on this sort of thing, but I'll try to have a form of goal, whether it's the full size goal, it's a pug goal, it's a five side goal, almost every opportunity, because I've found that sometimes when you take a striker and, and the focus is on them in that particular practice, that's when they start to feel some of those pressures. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but actually are there opportunities where they can just be free to score goals and no one's really watching and actually yeah. they can express themselves in those opportunities. And I, w I would say that that is something that goes right the way from grassroots in, in, in different sports all the way through because you so want that creativity and everything. Would you say there's a, almost a psychological factor links this then that there's a fear of failure because people are watching with, with young girls and therefore the environment we have to create is to remove that, that fear from, from our practices? Yeah, I would, I would definitely say from my experiences that that plays a huge part. And I don't know whether it's necessarily removing the fear, but it's perhaps allowing them to cope with it better, to understand that the, the fear is risk. And we don't have to use that word fear. It can be something else. But I would say from the experiences that I've had you know, through playing and coaching, those who kind of 
feel safe, psychologically safe to take risks in those environments tend to be more free. And, you know, they would they score more? I'm not entirely sure because that can come down to a technical side of things, but they certainly find themselves to have more opportunities in those moments in the game. So they'll be the ones who try and get onto the end of the pass. They'll be the ones who are trying to do different things. The question to both of you then, thinking about psychological safety within practice and, and linking it back to this sort of idea of one-touch finishes, what, what sort of things would you do to, to provide even more safety for them? Is there any, any examples you can give to coaches? I think just from my perspective, Mark, it would just be getting coaches to think about how do we support players with coping with that pressure and coping with taking risks and we've got to provide the risks sometimes and really rack up that challenge to really put them in a, an environment where they start to be more comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So in terms of that real assessment of risk, I've, I've got to understand where pressure is likely to come from. You know, where is the pressure coming from usually playing against this player right now? And I think quite a lot of that comes from self-awareness. Like how much do we do with the players about being really aware and not always after the moment, but in the moment. So really thinking about, you know, I need to try and have this real time perception of what's happening right now versus trying to get an understanding of where do I want my opponent to be? So can I directly influence my opponent's next action? Can I try and predict the next move? Am I really calculated in my movements and know why I'm doing it? So a really big big question that Joe said at the beginning around why. So, you know, if I moved here, why did that have more effect than if I moved there? And if I moved at this time, why was that way more effective? And why was I able to get on the ball and better get a better connection this time than I was last time? And I think that's so individualized to each player. And like we spoke about in the webinar around, you know, the the opportunity scale, that could be a a four for one player, but an eight for another. So I think having that real opportunity for players to be self-aware and critically reflect in the moment and around the moment, not always afterwards, will really help to start them to think about assessing risk and and trying to work out, is it actually a risk or is it a different opportunity that's being presented? And I think that's, that's the real question that we need to start on picking with the players, I think. I, I totally agree. And I think sometimes when you help them to do that, it allows players to have an element of control over the situation. So they're not just finding themselves and they're just going to wait and see what happens, that they can actually impact what happens in the next moment or the moment after that or even before. I, I would totally agree. It's it's about reframing sometimes and you can, you know, different types of questioning can help to do that, you know, during, in the moment and after. But it's reframing this element of taking risk. And actually, is it a risk, like you just said? Mm-hmm. Or can we reframe it to help them think in a different way? You, you sort of answered my, my next question there of how valuable is questioning in, in this kind of environment. And, and sort of, I, I can imagine some of the questions coming out of an under 10 session where there's there's five defenders and a goalkeeper and there's two attackers. I can imagine some of the questions coming out from those attackers when you go right play, go score goals, and they've got five defenders to get through. How valuable of framing that question in the right way to them is, is going to make them see the value in the practice? I think it's huge. For me, timing, I think I've learned this over my last couple of years working at the FA, is it's not just about the question you ask, it's the moment you ask it. So one thing that I found 
works quite well with certain types of players who perhaps need a bit more time to think is to pose the question at the beginning. This this is a problem we're going to solve or, you know, in, in 10 minutes or whenever we stop the practice, I'm going to ask you this question. So you've now got to find the answer or some answers before, because sometimes if you put them on the spot, they just, they, they're stuck for an answer. So it's almost using that example where I've just said where it's five defenders, two attackers. What you're saying is that pose the question before the practice starts and, and almost say to them, right, you're going to have a problem think about how you're going to you create opportunities to score one touch finishes here and then we'll explore it with with uh, follow up after the practice is finished or mid practice i've just found with some players who perhaps need a bit more time or just kind of react without thinking is to engage the thinking a bit earlier you say right here's the question it's two versus five how are you going to score the most goals in the next 10 minutes or five minutes whatever go go and play and then we're going to try and work out what the answer is and I think connecting them to the why, Mark, as well, like what, why is the five defenders and two of us? Why is there more of them? Unless, well, actually, if we say this is what the, the game is saying to us, this is what the game demands are. And, OK, it might not be for an under-14. So what I've got to be really clear about as an under-14s coach is what does this mean for me in my context? And I might just start with a defence plus one. But we'll be really clear that, you know, it's 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 stating now within the game that there will be more defenders and attackers. So how do I start to drip feed that in for my players and really connect them to the why of why we're doing that? And as we know for females, that's really, really important to to give a little bit of background and context behind what we're doing. Otherwise, you probably start the practice and they'll have more questions about yeah. why this practice and they start to play the practice rather than the game. And that's where, you, you know, that you start to get unstuck a bit and the players start to just try and and gain success within that particular practice rather than start thinking about what this means for them in the game. Yeah, no, I think it's really good that you've emphasised that point of the understanding the why. And again, that's something that, you know, we want to encourage coaches to do more of is rather than just explaining the practice, explaining why and how this fits into the bigger picture of the game and and, and starting to allow our, our young female players to explore this in, in more detail because we know, you know, we know there's studies there that girls would like to ask more questions than boys and therefore can sometimes eat into playing time. So how you set that up in the first place can save some time during the practice where they can actually really experience it. Good. Now, I mean, one of the things as well, and again, we'll reference another another webinar here as well with, with Paul McGuinness and Paul McGuinness's Quadrant Tool. And again, just sort of linking it back to Joe really a little bit around physical literacy and, and movement skills to get into these positions. How much emphasis do you think coaches need to put on movement types with, with their young players to, to create all of the opportunities we started to talk about today? You know, building that fundamental basis, if you like, I think most coaches would probably agree is, is is key, really, because from a number of different angles, whether it's kind of, you know, you know, injury prevention when they get a bit older, but actually it's being able to manipulate their body into these different, you know, playing positions where they can react in different ways. And you need to teach your body to become automatic, you know, so when you like first start to drive a car, you were like, right, I'm going to put seatbelt here and then my gear sticks here and then I'm going to put my clutch down and the brake. It's the same thing with the body. It's actually going through the motions of, right, I need to twist here. I need to plant my, my foot there. 
but actually it's doing it in a way that so that it becomes automatic and yeah. you know lots of the coaches that have been you know, been working through the advanced youth ward and talking to a lot of coaches, they spend a lot of time, particularly in the boys' academy, working on those elements. I would say that it's something that's a big part of the message that we send across to teachers in schools is, you know, that they are they have this unique opportunity to help kids develop their physical literacy at the earliest point. I mean, they spend most of their time in school. Mm. Like, you know, there's an incredible opportunity to develop those skills. Because once they become efficient in the way that they move, that's something that they don't have to worry about anymore. They can then take on new information. And and how this ties in, Kelsey, really coming back over to you with this idea of, you know, that moment before the one touch finish, if those younger informative years of our, you know, under eights or under tens are more physically able to move and, and transfer weight and get into positions, then obviously we're going to probably create so many more opportunities for, for finishing in the final third if, if those players are in much better physical shape. Yeah, and I think just just looking at the amount of bodies inside the 18-yard box and what's going on within there, there's, there's bound to be balls that don't land right at the right time where you, you just took that half a step, ready to hit it, and I've got to adjust, I've got to move, I've got to check back, I've got to, and as you can tell by by the stats that have come out, there's not much of that standing or checking back in terms of finishing. So where are they the ones that have been missed? Who knows? Because we haven't looked looked into that. But if we can develop a range of of movers that can can move off single pivots rather than double and and be able to really move off off one foot efficiently, quick enough, open up the hips to to get onto balls that are astray or balls that have been deflected or come off a knee or goalkeepers parry back out, whatever that might look like. And I think sometimes for us as well as coaches is to develop our knowledge. And this is where the MDT stuff comes in dramatically. And we're still kind of in, a, in its infancy in terms of professionalism within the women's game. You know, we're still quite new to where we're at with it. But I think being able to have that multidisciplinary approach where we've, we've all got them now from RTCs all the way through, but using it efficiently, that it doesn't have to be segregated. You go out there and do the warm up. I'll go over here and set this this practice up and then you I'll just have them when you're finished. How can I get involved with what you're doing from a warm-up and a, a PPC perspective and then vice versa? So sometimes I might have been coaching a session and see a player and it, the, that first time finishing is like, they just every time it comes across the swipe and they miss it. And I'm constantly, right, they need more to first time finishing, they need more. And that's a symptom to potentially a footwork pattern that they can't quite get their foot patterning right to be yeah. able to do that. So I've missed that from a coaching lens. But from a physical perspective, somebody else is going to pick that up. And I think that's really important where you work collaboratively together that you're looking for the causes and not just symptoms. And sometimes that's where we need to now be be better as coaches of, of working in groups and being really specific and supporting each other with that. I think that's really important. I don't think, you know, moving forward, one of the things that we really want to promote is this. We don't want to see performance coaches working in isolation. We want them to be involved in the session planning so that, like you say, the movements you talked about can be 
you know, built up within warm-ups and, you know, lead-in sessions so that actually when the players do get to the point where, I don't know, let's say they're, they're trying to strike from across and there's a one-touch finish, that they've already experienced those movements and built some of those patterns up. So, Joe, what would you say then, you know, just to put in on your experiences of movement and everything, and I think some of the games that we, we've sort of explored with university students when delivering some of the awards that we've done, what would be your top three movement skills that's going to help develop a, a young player to, to move better? What would they focus on? I think the ones that I like or I find that are really effective with young younger players is ones where they're twisting and turning as much as possible mm. because there is just so much involved in it. And, you know, one of the messages, this is particularly with young, young players now, and I'm talking, you know, early primary school age is that even for them running with an object in their hand and being able to to move with it in different ways just holding it is huge you know as adults we think well that's easy you pick it up and you run but for young kids well if i'm holding it in one hand i'm i'm now limited to how much that part of my body can move so i'd say sorts of games where and the simple games like tag and chase but in different directions different movement patterns because you then start to build in not just the physical movements, but actually now there's somebody I've got to evade or somebody I've got to outwit. And all of a sudden we're learning very early tactics that are applied in the professional game. It's the same thing. Yeah. You know, let's say you're trying to get you, you know, you're trying to get away from a defender. Well, that's like a tag game, effectively. Okay, it looks a bit different, but the movement patterns are there. It's the twisting and turning. Because I think and you mentioned it, Kelsey, about kind of the before, during and after. And I think certainly from my own perspective, I've not spent enough time on the before and potentially the after. We spend a lot of time looking at the jury and what happens when you've got the ball, but actually not that bit before so I don't know about top three but certainly the kind of the twisting and turning games I think are huge for developing lots and lots of different elements of young players not just the physical side yeah sorry Joe I'll put you on the spot with that one but it's that, that twist and turning does tie in, doesn't it, Kelsey? When you look at the one-touch finishes and the majority of them are just running onto the ball. Now, if we created an environment where more players were getting better at twist and turning and spinning off the back of players or, or, or twisting away from the ball to come back to the ball, then we're going to provide more opportunities for, for finishes to happen. Yeah, and I think it helps our players become two-sided as well. Mm-hmm. And this is in all areas of the pitch and... You know, some players won't be two-footed and some players struggle with, with both sides, but at least being able to be two-sided, to open up on both sides, even mm-hmm. if it's predominantly with one foot, but being yeah. around that and using, again, using the tags and and things that Joe spoke about there, that I think we, we think about it and frame it as like, how do we get away from this defender? But actually, how do, how do I influence and manipulate this defender to move them where I want them to be? Exactly. I think that's where now we need to start flipping it of going, right, well, if, if the space is here, and, and ultimately it's about managing exploiting space, and I need to try and manage an opponent or manage myself to exploit a different space. And I think the more that we can get children to think about managing and exploiting space the more that they can start to think and again reflect in the moment and then and, and, and the process of trying to to outwit that opponent. But from a, a real positive perspective, I think that's the 
the yeah. key of what Joe said around reframing some of it is that I'm not here to try and get away from you because that all of a sudden then makes me panic that I've got to get away yeah. from the defender quickly. Mm. When when I feel in charge and I've got to move you to where I want you, that then becomes a different opportunity for me rather than a, rather than a risk. And I suppose what that leads into is that if we create players that can find space and they're in charge of that moment, it then gives them more time to think about the type of finish they're going to use. And therefore, we might see a more variety in the chip, the, the, the pass, the strike. And that all comes down to, like you say, the, the before part of the one-touch finish of being almost psychologically safe in the moment to think more about the finish rather than having to worry about where the defender is. Am I going to get enough space? And it all becomes a little bit rushed in their heads. Yeah, and I think that's down to ourselves as coaches, really, to serve the players up almost a variety of experiences that represent the game. So how many different experiences can we give them and serve them up that they can then almost adapt and flex in that moment with, again, as we spoke about before, what's happening right now in real time and what's anticipated and what could potentially happen based on prior experiences. So I think the more opportunities we give them of that, the better chance they've got of assessing that that moment. But I think... A lot of what I see, Mark, and I'm not sure if this reflects in what you see, but a lot of this is done, like we're doing finishing the attack this week. Tick, done. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not sure that almost that blocked work of, right, we've, we've done that now. We're now moving back on to build the attack or we're now moving back on to, to playing out or playing through midfield or playing through the thirds with a finish just as a byproduct of you finishing there and you get two goals and then because that will help the constraints of my practice. Well, actually, this is this needs to be built up over a period of time. And mm. how often do we revisit it, whether that's in games or whether that's in training? And one thing I don't really see much of is that real individual targets. We see, can we try and do this? Can we get better at this? But how many targets, how many times have we set the strikers, right? We want you to get a conversion rate of 25%, one in four, off your ball. Mm. And let's just, how often do we measure it? How often do we check back in with the players? How often do the players measure themselves against it? How often do they reflect against it? Is it just one of practices? Is it something we revisit and go back to in a number of times and check in again and measure again? Um, and going back to this data, I think that we can almost do it live in the moment as well and, and reflect, use it as part of our reflections. Why, why did you get one in four in that practice, but you didn't get any in this practice? What, what was the difference? What Did you feel more pressure in this practice? Was your timing the better? And now it's then we'll start to unpick things with the players. Um, and that, that, that's just point. my observations. Uh, I think it's a really great point. And, and what we're not saying is that we're using it as a tool to, to judge players, but we want it as a development tool where it gets them more inquisitive and more curious about what they're doing and why they're doing it and how how they might improve in the future. And, and using, using data and using observations can really feed a player's sort of enthusiasm to, to get better and understand why they're doing what they're doing. So I know I think that's a really, really valid point on that. And I'm going to give you both just a minute to to think about almost like your, your one minute piece of information that you'd share with, with the coaches that you think is going to really support them in, in sort of developing this idea around one, one touch finishes. But what struck me today is to conclude is, one touch finishing is more than 
50% of the game at the, the highest level. So therefore, as coaches of young players, as RTC, as WSO Academy players, we have to provide opportunities within our practice for those centre forwards, those midfielders, whoever it may be, to present themselves in a way that they can score one touch and give them opportunities. We also need to recognise that there's often more defenders in the way than there is than when you're on your own. And the movements that have been involved has been very much running onto the ball. So we need to explore more variety with our players and how we score goals in a, in a chaotic environment where there's lots going on. But most importantly, I think... I think one of you said it earlier on is we have to make it fun and we have to make it interesting and we need to engage the players to to really want to try new things and not just, you know, the, the traditional, as we said earlier, one touch finishes and join the back of the queue kind of thing that we often see in grassroots and, and some areas of the game. So what would you say if you're going to give a minute's worth, you know, let's, let's say 35, 30 seconds advice around one touch finishes what would it be joe i mean a couple of things might be things we've already mentioned already but i would say uh, one thing i was just thinking about was and you mentioned it Kelsey, was around this idea of kind of differentiating between your players and actually you know why do i need to have one theme for all my 16 to 20 numbers of players that i've got what if we had two or three different themes for one session because it's focusing on the, the developmental needs of the player at that moment. Now, and I'm talking very much about development of football here. So it might be one touch finishing for that group. It might be building the attack for another group. You know, it's just something around, we, we want players to be creative with their one touch finishing, but how creative are we in our practice design to allow those different opportunities to happen? And I'm, I'm with you, Mike. I think, one of the values that I have as a coach and, you know, winning and competitiveness is, is key, but I fundamentally believe that it has to be enjoyable and whether that means, and I use the word enjoyable because some enjoyment can come from learning. Some enjoyment can come from winning and being competitive. So it's, if, if they're finding it enjoyable, they'll keep wanting to do more and try harder. So I think, for me, it kind of sits into those areas and certainly around that psychological safety. That, that I think that is key, particularly with female players. I think that's a space that's really important to build their confidence in those situations. Yeah, I think it's a myth that sometimes that you can't, you can't work hard and develop and have fun at the same time. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think we need to get away from that, that players will, will still learn if they have fun, if it's pitched and developed in the, in the right way by the coach. Kelsey I think mine would be just just going back to knowing the game knowing the game demands what what type of player am I trying to create or what what do I need to try and replicate for these players to strive and survive on top of the game and what's that look like for me whether I'm under nines under 12s under 14s under 21s how do I bring that back to my context so in terms of invasion games across all sports, there's going to be some fundamental reoccurring themes that will allow players to be successful at outwitting an opponent. But then if you then take into context our football and, and the rules and regulations in which we work within, that makes it then more specific. And then you break that down even further to what are them real skills that need to be refined over a period of time that will allow players to be successful in this moment of the game in particular. 
versus what Joe says, their needs right now. So you're talking about a long-term player development plan versus their needs right now versus really emphasizing and building on those super strengths they already have. So what we don't want to do is start, you know, just, just looking at the things they can't do. So, so now when we're talking about the game moving forward and we're thinking about first time finishes might start going down. Once we now start thinking about how we're going to defend and what that's going to look like, and they'll start to decrease. So what other types of finishes are we going to start doing? That doesn't mean that we don't do first time finishes anymore. It means we continue to, to work on them and, and continue to, to win that 1v1 battle or the 2v1 battle or managing space and exploiting space and me getting just that half a stride in front to finish. But it also means I need a variety of other tools in my toolbox that if I am stopped in doing that, I've got multiple other ways of outwitting you as, as my defender. So I think it's just trying to balance all that up. But unless I know the demands of the game, I think that's really difficult to then serve up in small menus for the players that are going to help them over a period of time. So, so the key point there you, you, you're saying is coaches need to educate themselves better of what the game looks like and what their players need at that moment and and build on the super strengths. And I think that's really important is that if someone scores you 20 goals with a one-touch finish, don't, don't start working so much on other things that you take away that super strength because mm -hmm. 20 goals is better than none. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure for anyone that's really interested. Definitely, if you haven't already watched the the webinar with with Kelsey and Bev and Rianne, it's it's a must to go and see. And certainly, this is an area that's not going to go away. And, and once maybe when Kelsey finishes her her research on this in in a couple of years, when she's done all twenty six weeks of the year, we'll we'll come back and we'll, and we'll look at this in more detail. What what the whole year's worth of data. But uh, Kelsey, thank you and. and Joe, thank you very much. You know, bring your insights into the, the environment and the physical literacy linked with your your work at Watford. It's been much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for having Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that. The podcast covers some other great topics. So if you want more, all past episodes can be found on the England Football Community and Spotify. We'll be back soon with another episode of Coachcast. So keep an eye on our social media channels and wherever you get your podcast from. From all of us at England Football Learning, thanks for listening.